You are listening to The Investor Way with Sam Ball and Jonathan McEwen. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and follow us on Twitter at TIWTweets. Hello, welcome to The Investor Way with myself, Jonathan McEwen, and my co-host, Sam Ball. This week on The Investor Way, we have full-year results from Countryside, Avon Rubber, Future, Zuo, and a book review of The Innovator's Dilemma. So, Sam, where shall we kick off? Shall we kick off with Countryside? Yeah, so Countryside, a FTSE 250 house builder, market cap about just over $2 billion, had their full-year results out. They weren't good. <laughs> Annual loss for the year end September was $5.5 million, compared with $170 million profit a year earlier, as revenue dropped 28% um, to $892 million, with an adjusted operating profit down 77% to $54.2 million. And these results had largely been overshadowed from the previous day with a public spat between the US hedge fund Browning West, who'd bought a stake in Countryside back in July, about a 9.4% stake, making them the third biggest shareholder. And they'd been demanding the resignation of the chief executive, Mr. Howell. And essentially, they were arguing for the sale of the housing business to concentrate on the more successful partnership division, which had a 60% return on investment and a 15% operating margin compared with the 20% return on investment for the house building business. The rest of the news from the company had been that been delayed in completions of more than 2,000 homes with private home completions falling from 1,454 from the previous year of 2,177. And in terms of the affordable homes that they build, they were down from 2,179 last year to 1,691 this year. And overall, Countryside sold 4,053 homes over the period which is down 29% on last year. But despite this, they have a relatively strong order book of 1.4 billion, which is actually up 15% on the previous year. And they had an equity raise back in July for or raising 250 million pounds. In terms of the valuation of the business, they currently have a price to earnings ratio of 62 and pay a dividend of 3.6%, or they have a yield of 3.6%, I should say. What are your thoughts on Countryside, Sam? It's, it's a bit of a strange house builder, isn't it? In that you can't, it's harder to compare to the other house builders that we've looked at just because it's got those two different elements. So the partnerships, is that the regeneration part of the business, basically? That's my, that's my understanding. Yeah. So, so they've got the house building side and they've got the partnership side where they're just regenerating existing properties. But I mean, it would describe itself as a UK house builder, but yeah, an urban regeneration company. I don't know if it's because we've gone through quite a few of them now, but I'm not particularly impressed by these results. I don't know if it's because it's more in the southeast, it's been harder hit by lockdowns, or it looks to me like it's been harder hit than some of the others we've looked at. Uh, no, I would, I would t- tend to agree with you. I mean, they'd, we'd had quite positive or surprisingly positive results uh, when we'd looked at Taylor w- Wimpy relatively recently in Red Row, but it just doesn't seem to have added up for Countryside. What's the period end? I think it's 30th of September. Yes, yeah, so they won't even include second lockdown. No, so I mean, it, when we get the next update, it could be worse. I'm just looking at the Red Row financials where revenues 
you know, it's, it's down a third, which is quite similar. And I was, I was just thinking, oh, well, uh, Red Rose results only go to 28 June, but then if it doesn't include a second lockdown, it's probably quite a fair comparison, actually. Yeah, no, that, that's right. That's right. Red Rose earning per share as well, down about mm-hmm. two thirds compared to 82% for countryside. And I thought the Red Rose order book was more impressive as well. Yeah, quite. I mean, it, it, it feels like, you know, a distressed company and you have the mm-hmm. hedge fund circling. It's, it's not something that I'd be looking at going near. Um, I don't know about you. No, I, if I was going to go for a house builder, this probably probably even go for Taylor Wimpy before this. Yeah. Well, I think Taylor, I mean, T- Taylor Wimpy, since we uh, spoke about it, it's been doing really well. The shares have been rallying. All right. Well, there you go. They're all doing quite well, though, aren't they? They are. Well, I think Taylor Wimpy in particular. What, how long ago was it that we just, uh, that the Taylor Wimpy results were out? I can do it by how many episodes ago it was. So it's only episode nine, so it's about a month ago. About a month ago. So, I mean, since then, the Taylor Wimpy shares, they must be up 30, 40%. What uh, have Countryside done in that same period? They're okay, okay. They've done, they've done sort of more, you're 20, 20%. So uh, okay. Taylor Wimpy have been more aggressive. Uh, okay. and they've, done, they've done an equity raise to buy some land at the cheap prices. All oh, right, the, I know, wasn't too the, keen on that. You weren't. I mean, yes. I, I, I was someone who's diluted, so I, I wasn't. I wasn't keen on it, but um, I think that that sort of more aggressive strategy may pay off if we see the vaccine and the sort of stronger recovery. But mm. um, well, I think that's one that we'll have to see how it plays out over the next year or two. So it looks like for going back to countryside, it looks like Rothschild and Co have been appointed to advise the board on the separation of the house building from the rest of the group. Yeah. So I mean. It, it sounds like it's that that side of things is going to go ahead, and I suppose the argument that the hedge fund Brown West make, I suppose it does make sense, and you could extract some value from the business and then grow the more profitable division. Yeah, I think it. I think it does make sense. The only thing I would say is that they are they are two, although they are separate businesses, they probably do go together quite well. So I don't. Know if and, any, I don't know if there's any benefit to the companies themselves, or it's just that. Yeah, they're likely to be valued higher as separate companies. Yeah. So you don't know whether it's in the business's long-term interest. It certainly might be in the shareholders' short-term interests. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's necessarily a negative, but it just they do seem like it's not it's not like when we look at some of the supermarkets and they've got a bank and you think, what what are they doing with that? If they've got if they've got one business where it's building houses and another where it's renovating them. They go together quite well, I'd have thought. No, that's right. And actually, since we've covered some of the supermarket stages, they have been talking about selling off the banks. Good. <laughs> They've been listening to the podcast. It's good to know. <laughs> okay. But no, it, it, it doesn't seem like a quality business. I wouldn't be interested in it. Well, certainly not at the moment. Yeah. If I was going to go for a house builder, I'd, I'd go for one of the others. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, we can move on from that. So next on the list, what have we got? So next up, we've got Future PLC. Okay, and Sam, what is Future? So Future, uh, they're basically a publisher. So they've got they've got loads. I can't say I really recognise any of them. Oh, they've got four four two. I've heard of that one, but it's stuff like you know Games Radar Plus, Golf Monthly, Guitar Player, Guitarist, Horse and Hound, Laptop, Hammer. Yeah, they've got. Uh... A whole range of magazines that are sold over in the UK. 
Yeah, so whatever the subject is, they've probably got a magazine on it. I think they're in the US as well, actually. And they mentioned in the results, I think their publishing business now reaches one in three adults in the UK and US. They're traditionally a publisher and they have announced their full year results, but they've also announced that they have, they're, they're going to be acquiring GoCo PLC, which is the company that owns GoCompare.com, which we'll get to after the results. The highlights of the results... Revenues grew 53% to 339.6 million. Adjusted EBITDA was 101.9 million, which grew from 54.5 million in the 2019 year. So they have been quite acquisitive. So take the numbers with a pinch of salt. The online audience grew 56%, and they've said their organic audience grew 48%. And with the acquisition of TI Media, they've said their geographical revenue split is now 57% UK and 43% US. So adjusted operating profit was 93.4 million, which was up 79%. Adjusted free cash flow was 96 million, which was up 79%. Organic revenue growth was only 6%. Bear in mind, revenue grew 53%. So the, the rest of it is acquisitions. Adjusted diluted earnings per share were up 57% and net debt was 62.1 million, which means the business is levered 0.6x. I guess they were they were all right results given what it is, but really the growth the growth's come from acquisitions, really. It's not really growing organically. So in um, terms of the latest acquisition, well GoCo, what do you think of that? It's strange because <laughs> it's it's a publisher and they're, they're buying an online insurance comparison website. I've listened to a few other podcasts talking about it and I can sort of see the logic. So people are saying they've got, although a lot of their publications are in print, there's a lot of online ones as well. And if they do an article about something, they could then use the comparison website to start like, selling products and maybe there's some cross-selling, but I don't see a huge amount. And I don't think because they're a successful publisher, they're going to know how to run a company like Go Compare. Interesting looking at the revenue mix by the products of future. So only 9% comes from traditional subscriptions and 6% from print advertising. So 15% between them, 29% from digital ads on the platform, 23% from e-commerce, another 12% from digital ads off platform, other media, 6%. So they do have a lot that's not from the sort of what you traditionally imagine from a publisher. I guess they're very aware that I guess print publishing is probably going one way in the long term. So they have they are making an effort to position themselves for a digital world. And to be fair to them, it looks like they've done quite a good job of doing that. But I still don't know if that puts them in a position where they should be running an insurance company. But that being said, I'd be more optimistic about the long-term prospects of GoCo than a future yep. without GoCo. <laughs> if that makes sense i yeah. think goco is a business it's probably got a better future ahead of it just because of the yeah. type of industry it's in yeah the argument made by the chairman of future was we believe that the combination is a unique strategic opportunity to create a leading global specialist media and intent platform capitalizing on the growing consumer demand for informed and value-driven purchasing decisions enabled by intent-driven content which we deliver strong returns for all shareholders that's the sales pitch anyway so what are your thoughts on the acquisition then do you think it makes sense it's a good question i don't know i think it makes more sense than 
you might initially think if you read a little bit more into it. And I suppose it would probably make me more optimistic for the future of future, having that side of the business. And I suppose if they've got, if they're getting a good sort of team from GoCo, then I think it probably could be integrated and integrated quite successfully. So I, I'm, yeah, a bit more optimistic about it, I think. I had a look at GoCo because you can obviously look at their results and compare it to Money Supermarket. So and they're paying £594 million. That's for a business with revenue of £152 million. And in the year ended 31 December 19, and profit was only £12.7 million. And if we compare that to money supermarket who conveniently have the exact same year end actually they had revenues of 388 million and profits of 94.9 million and then in addition to that goco has grown from in the last five years up to these this is the year end 31 december 19 bear in mind but in in those five years revenues had grown from 118.9 million to 152.4 million which is an increase of 28%. And Money Supermarkets revenues had grown from 281.7 million to 388.4 million, which is an increase of 43%. So Money Supermarkets market cap is only 1.33 billion and they're paying 594 million for GoCo, which to me looks like an inferior business. Not only is it half the size, but the growth is slower as well. So I, I sort of understand why they've done it, but it's, it's certainly far from a market leader. That's fair enough. But do you think, despite it not being a market leader, do you think it's a reasonable acquisition for future? I can see the logic of it. I think, it, I think like you said, it gives, it gives them more of a future. I'd probably prefer to hold it with that in there, even if I think they're possibly overpaying compared to certainly what money supermarkets trading for. I'd rather have it in there probably than not in there if I was a shareholder. Sure. But it's not It's not a company I'd probably ever be interested in holding shares in. Yeah, I'd possibly come to a similar conclusion, but possibly add some, add some diversity to future as a business. And I mean, it, looking at this sort of share price growth, despite it possibly, as you alluded to earlier, coming from acquisitions, the last two years, it's... Share price is up about 230%. It's not bad, is it? It's not It's not too bad. So what do we know? So what? what <laughs> I mean, it was down. They were certainly down on the news of the acquisition. I think they've, they've recovered a bit since. And I suppose only time will tell. See how the integration works and whether it's, yeah, uh, yeah reaps dividends for the business. Possibly yeah. worth mentioning as well. In terms of the acquisition itself, uh, each yeah. GoCo shareholder would get 0.052497 future shares and 33p in cash for mm. the deal. So GoCo shares are currently trading at 127p. So it looks like it's going to be about 75% basically with a bit more than that. Maybe 80% of it's going to be by issuing new equity and only... Yeah. About twenty percent of it is going to be from actual. I yeah. guess it'd be, it'd be it'd be borrowings, but yeah. yeah. So there will be dilution as well. So at the minute, futures got a market cap of one point seven five billion. Whilst that market cap's going to be going up, shareholders are going to be diluted. 
I'd just, I'd probably avoid it. I think if I wanted exposure to that area, I think money supermarkets are better business, which is why I own yeah. it. What are your and thoughts? Would, how, how would you feel if you were a GoCo shareholder? I'd probably feel quite pleased. I think it's a business that it's certainly not the market leader. It's quite far behind. It's a smaller company and it's not even growing as quickly as its competitors. It's doubled since it listed in 2016, but a good a good chunk of that has come since the acquisition was announced. In the last three years, it's only up 26%. I think I'd probably be quite pleased. It's the sales price as well. The share price is pretty much going to be near the all-time high. So I think almost anyone that's bought it is going to make a profit on it. So I'd take the money and run. I probably wouldn't hold the future shares. I'd probably just no. get rid of it. Fine. About you? Yeah, no, I, it wouldn't be probably either business separately or together. I don't think I'd be particularly interested. And it's very, I mean, I know you've sort of um, mentioned money supermarket, but it's a very competitive industry. Mm-hmm. It'll be interesting to watch and see how it, see how it goes. Yeah, see how they get on. Maybe we proved wrong. <laughs> yeah, maybe. So next on the list, we've got Avon Rubber. Yes. So what have uh, Avon Rubber been up to, John? So for anyone who doesn't know, and there may be quite a few people, Avon Rubber is the maker of gas masks and body armour. It's been doing very well recently. It's listed on the FTSE 250, but it has ha- the shares have taken a bit of a tumble. And I think that's really after the shares hitting the record high, people have been taking some profits. So onto the results for the year-end 30th of September, they reported a 30.8% improvement in revenue on the final results to $168 million, which is said comprised of 0.1% organic constant currency growth with 38, a 31.7% contribution uh, for the acquisition of 3M's helmet and armour division and 1% for currency headwind. They said the adjusted operating profit was up 33.6% to 30.2 million. And that reflected the benefits of strong organic trading performance, the helmets and armor acquisition, and then the adjusted basic earnings per share were up 13.8% to 76.5p. And adjusted EBITDA margin came in at 22.9%, up 150, uh, 140 basis points on an organic currency basis with a strong uplift in the respiratory protection, unsurprisingly, driven by an improved product mix. Reported operating profit fell to 5.9 million from 9.9, which included uh, 6.5 million of amortization of acquired intangibles. So the depreciation of sort of non-physical assets and 17.8 million of exceptional costs related to the acquisition of the helmets and armor division and Team Wendy. Reported basic earnings per share improved £4.47 from 46p year on year, which you put down to the results of Milkrite, which is the milking side of the business, I suppose, the rubber devices used to attach the cows, others, and gain arising from that divestment. Cash conversion was 84.9%, excluding that acquisition of the helmets and armor and net cash stood at 93.2 million at the end of the year, rising from 35.4 million a year earlier. Avon Rubber, Sam, what do you think of it as a business? I feel like I must be missing something about it. Okay. I've, I've seen quite a few people talk quite positively of it as a business, but I, I don't really understand why. I think it looks quite expensive. But then mm-hmm. 
the revenue growth has come from acquisitions. So I'm not, I'm not sure why it's so expensive. I just don't really it's, get it, to be honest. It's got, I mean, I suppose it's got quite a lot of aspects of quality to it in some of the, and it's sort of a market leader in some of the areas that it operates in. So it has a military side of the business where it makes almost like when you see a SWAT team, it makes those masks. So it's got a contract with the US Department of Defense. So it sells the M69 aircrew mask and the M53A1 mask, if that means anything to you. Um, it doesn't. <laughs> it I'm doesn't. Okay. speed with my military uh, Well, I can't, I can't say I am either, but in terms of the money that that's bringing in, it's, got, it's bringing in about 55 million a year. For the last five years, revenues only increased from 143 million to 168 million. So a lot of that will include the milk business that's now gone, won't it? I mean, looking at the share price, I mean, you'd, you'd have done very well if you'd bought it five years ago. It's up about 4x, but I don't, it's it's very expensive now. And I don't really. Yeah, it's got, it's got one positive that it does have is multi-year military contracts uh, in the portfolio with an order book of over $100 million, 79.8 million pounds. So I suppose it's got those, it's got the outlook is fairly secure. So the share price is about £41. It's not, as we've talked about on the revenue side, I wouldn't say it's grown very well in the last five years. But in the last five years, there's not been a single year where earnings per share has gone over a pound. But it's, it's over 40 times earnings and it doesn't seem to be growing. I don't really, I'm, I, I don't know. I feel like I must be missing something, but I don't really get why it commands such a premium. So is it one you be interested in honestly i don't feel like i know enough about it and like you say what justifies the price on the surface yeah. it doesn't look that attractive <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay what do we have last on the list so finally we've got i think it's pronounced zora the ticker symbol is zuo so oh, no. i know you you called it zuo when you introduced it which <laughs> is probably the safer option it's spelled z-u-o-r-a so i'm going to call it zora which may or may not be right Okay. So is Zora a company you're familiar with at all, John? Well, I think, as you can tell, no. So Zora is a platform that's designed to figure out what it's, it's what customers are buying, and then it optimizes new subscription pro- products to fit those behaviors. So it's got very little competition because it's quite a unique platform. It's, it's supposedly very user-friendly and, and flexible, and what it does is it, it pulls information about customers' previous purchases, analyzes the data, and then recommends new subscription-based products that would complement the customers' existing business lines, with the customers being large businesses that take in lots of data. So it's 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 really it's optimized to be selling to very large businesses. Traditionally, legacy systems can take weeks to implement price changes or change the terms for customers but Zora's infrastructure allows tweaks in pricing or terms to be made in a matter of minutes which gives the clients the ability to continually adjust their new offerings so that they can maximize the profitability so in a nutshell it, it helps large businesses optimize their subscription products which as we're now in a bit of a subscription economy is quite a quite a trendy thing I suppose and quite quite a useful thing as well so they announced their third quarter results this week and they posted a net loss of 16.8 million 
up, which was 14 cents a share, compared to a loss of 18.2 million or 16 cents a share a year earlier. After adjustments, they said they only lost a cent a share, which was an improvement from the nine cent per share adjusted loss a year earlier. Sales for the third quarter rose to 77.2 million, up from 71.8 million. Although the, the growth is low, it's better than was expected because what's happened is, as a lot of these larger businesses have been hit by the pandemic, they're not taking on, the, it's made it difficult for Zora to grow the clients. There's not loads of clients as they're switching online. That This, this is something, it's, it's a bit of a nicety, I think it's fair to say. It's not, it's not something you need if you're moving online because of COVID. So if you're trying to conserve costs or you don't know what the outlook of your business is, this is something that you'd... You're probably not, you'd probably just leave it a couple of quarters if you were thinking of getting it. So mm-hmm. in terms of the earnings call, just in some, some more detail, the CFO, Todd McElhatton, said, so looking at our customers of $100,000 and higher in ACV, which is annual contract value, we ended with 653 customers with an annual contract value of $100,000 which reflected 11% year-on-year growth. They've said this customer group continues to represent 90% of our business. We added a total of 25 new customers in the quarter, and the size of the customer deals we added were larger than historical levels, primarily as a result of our success in selling, selling in larger enterprises. In Q3, we closed six deals with annual contract value over $500,000, including the largest deal in the company's history. As discussed in our Q2 call, we were impacted with a higher level of churn in the prior quarter as a result of the pandemic. As we shared with you, we expected Q2 to be our toughest quarter for churn. This indeed transpired, and in Q3, we saw churn decrease 55% from the prior quarter and a return to our historical average. In Q3, net dollar retention was flat quarter over quarter at 99%. Our systems processed over 14 billion in volume, which represents 31% year-on-year growth. And the subscription side of the business grew 15% year on year to 62 million. Professional services revenue decreased 14% year over year to 15.2 million, primarily driven by the shifting of services work to our system integrator partners. This is in line with our strategy to improve our mix towards higher margin subscription revenue. In Q3, subscription revenue represented 80% of total revenue. This was our highest level in over three years. This resulted in total revenue growing to 77.2 million for the quarter. Non-GAAP gross margins for the subscription side of the business was 78%. Non-GAAP operating loss was break-even in the quarter, reflecting a $7.3 million improvement in the prior year. Calculated subscription billings in Q3 was 70.8 million, reflecting growth of 14% year over year, a dramatic improvement from the prior quarter. And they ended the quarter with 178.8 million in cash and cash equivalents, roughly in line with the previous quarter. What I find quite interesting about Zora is compared to a lot of the other US tech companies, it's actually quite cheap. The reason is because the growth is slower and it's it's been decelerating, although it's now picked, picked, starting to pick up again. But the growth, you know, it's consistent. It's been below 20% for a while now. But the year ended 31 January 2017. Total revenue was 113 million. In the year ended 31 Jan 2020, total revenue was 276 million. It's grown 
well over 100% in the last few years. Trailing 12 month revenue was 285 million. And that's probably growing. I think you can expect that to grow about 15% per year. However, if we look at the valuation, and bear in mind, 80% of the revenue is the subscription side of the business, which is 78% gross margin, growing at about 15% per year. The valuation for that trailing 12-month revenue of $285 million, the valuation is only $1.34 billion. So that puts it at a price to sales of less than five, which for a US tech company is very low. Now, I, mm. I understand that's because the growth rate is lower, but I think the valuation is quite reasonable, especially when you look at a lot of other US listed tech companies. What are your thoughts on it, John? Not something that I'd traditionally be interested in. I appreciate that you're saying it's cheaper than a lot of, I don't know whether you'd say comparable or companies in a similar sector to it, but mm. um, I don't think the numbers are particularly encouraging. I don't really understand the business enough to be confident in the direction that it would be going in. So I probably wouldn't be looking at it myself personally. I mean, is it something that you'd be you'd consider investing in, even if you think it's more just of a, a well a value play in the tech sector? Potentially, I wouldn't say value play. Okay. <laughs> I suppose. I mean, it's it's still not profitable. The yeah. only thing is, I think if it can fifteen percent growth rate when the price of sales is under five, I think if it can grow at that level, I think that that's quite reasonable, especially with the gross margins being 78%. I think I do see a scenario where it becomes quite a profitable little company and the market cap of 1.3 billion, it, it is small. Although now could be a very good time to buy. I'd probably wait and see if the growth either continues to accelerate or at least looks like it has stopped decelerating mm -hmm. because it's all well and good saying 15% a year, but if it doesn't look like it's actually going to do that long term, then that's mm. why it's that's why it's so cheap is because it's not growing. And obviously with these growth companies, the clues in the name, isn't it? So I think I think it's an interesting one in that I don't think a lot of people it's on a lot of people's radar. And I think if it can continue to grow at the same levels or hopefully even accelerate I'd potentially be interested and I wouldn't necessarily mind paying a higher valuation if it looked like the growth was re-accelerating again. No, well, I mean, that's, that's, I think that's fair enough. I just thought it was interesting just because obviously so many of these valuations at the minute, are, well, they're quite, they're quite ludicrous. Have you, have you followed Snowflake at all? I haven't, I haven't even heard of Snowflake. So it's a recent IPO, but that's trading at the minute at over 200 times sales. Goodness. Exactly. What's it I mean, do? I'd, I'd, it's, it's too complicated. <laughs> Wait, I'll Google okay, it. Okay. Wait, I'll, I'll try and give like, it, it, it went in the too hard pile for me. So it provides a data warehouse that's faster, easier to use, and far more flexible than traditional data warehouse offerings. Right. But yeah, 200. So okay. maybe, you can, maybe you can explain what a data warehouse is next week. Yeah, well, the point was 200 times revenues. Yeah, I mean, no, I, I, don't, I don't know how a company... So it's, it's trading at over 100 billion market cap now with about 500 million in sales. Goodness, goodness. <laughs> it's, I mean, maybe it's just I don't know about data warehouses, so... But, it, I mean, how much does it have to grow? Yeah, no, I appreciate. Oh, 
crazy. Anyway, of the four companies we've talked about, mm. Countryside, Avon Rubber, Future, and Zora, oh. if you had to buy one, which one would it be? Oh, goodness. That's, that's really difficult. I mean, I want to get to the bottom of Avon Rubber because I think there's more to that company than I've looked at on the surface. But as I don't understand it at the moment, I couldn't be buying it. So if you forced me to pick, maybe Future. I think when it maybe starts, future. if you forced me to pick. That's yeah. <laughs> I'd yeah. probably go with Zora. But I mean, I, I won't be buying any of the four that we've looked at today. No, uh, or certainly yeah, not in the near future. No, that's the same, same. On to the book review then. We've book got review. The Innovator's Dilemma. Yes. So The Innovator's Dilemma, it's a book by Clayton Christensen, and it was the 1997 Business Book of the Year. So it's about why great companies fail and why they fail as a result of new technologies that you'd maybe expect them to be mm-hmm. uh, up to date with. So it looks at why great companies fail. So obviously lots of poor companies fail for obvious reasons, but what it's, it wanted to get at was companies that you wouldn't expect to fail. So companies that had good management, that listened to their customers, were market leaders, why they why they failed. And what it looks at is the different types of innovation in industries. So it's, it splits innovation into sustaining and disruptive innovation. So sustaining innovation is something where it fits in quite nicely to what a company company's already doing and, and where customers actually want it. So with sustaining innovation, if you have a manager that's very good and goes out and listens to customers and adds in new products and features that they want, that'd be what sustaining innovation is. And a yeah. disruptive innovation, it's basically an innovation that, it's a very sort of like new technology or something that the traditional customers don't want at present. So an example was it looks at the disk drive industries in quite a lot of detail. And when smaller drives came out, so when they moved from like eight inch to say five, five inch drives off or 14 inch drives to eight inch drives, what always happened initially was those smaller drives, they, they had lower story or like they had fewer megabytes. So because of that, their traditional customers didn't want it. So they always wanted the larger drives, which had a higher capacity. And what would happen is smaller companies would start up with the smaller drives and they'd go and find new uses. So maybe like personal computers instead of mainframes and stuff like that. And then what happens is eventually these smaller products, even though they were inferior technologically, they improve at a rate where they then overtake the traditional products and then the large company, its customers all switch to the smaller ones and it just looks like it's been left behind. But what it gets at is that if these companies, so say the 14-inch 14, the 14 drive manufacturers, if they actually developed an 8-inch drive and took it to their customers, all their customers would say, well, we don't want it because it doesn't meet our needs because it's not got enough megabytes. And for a lot of management, they'd look like they'd done the right thing and then they'd, just, they'd have to shelve it, whereas what they should be doing is finding new markets for it with the expectation that it's going to grow and develop into some it's, it's going to develop it's going to develop new uses that they can't anticipate at the minute one of the key things it talks about is like resource allocation in companies so what tends to happen as well is with these larger companies with the disruptive technologies because there's no clear market for them even if they do start doing it what happens is resources so like staff they get pulled onto the other projects so they're just not given a high priority because it's not what the key customers want so it says the solution really for large companies is that they'd need to like spin off a separate company that they own the majority of where the people on it are fine to work with smaller sales and if they're not going to get pulled off onto something else. 
So it's interesting. So it does look at a lot of different industries. So it looks at disc drives, uh, mechanical excavators, motorbikes, uh, printers, and lots of others. So it does a lot of actual like case studies and deep dives into actual industries where this has happened. And that part of the book is really interesting. But then there's other parts where it just goes over the theory, particularly at the start, where it, it reads a lot like a textbook. So parts of it were quite difficult to get through. And then other parts were really interesting. But overall, I thought it was very good. And I think it is, it's certainly a useful way to think about a lot of companies where they could potentially be disrupted. So for example, it was off air, but a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about Intel. And you, you were saying that like your understanding was that they'd, they'd gone as far as their architecture would allow them to. And, and Apple that's... have since switched to ARM for their, or what's going to be for their, their Macs. I mean, they already used it in their iPads and in their iPhones. Yeah, so that's, I mean, I don't know enough about it, but that's potentially no. an example of like where it's happened. So say initially, whatever this new technology that ARM has is, and I could be wrong, but it's just something that popped into my head. But initially, that was probably an inferior product to Intel. And Intel's carried on developing their existing product. And then what's happened is ARM's caught up with the new products and it's got to a point where it's actually, it's superior or at least it's equal to the, to mm -hmm. the Intel product. And then a lot of customers are then starting to switch. So another example it talks about is electric cars, where if in the 90s you'd made, um, you'd created an electric car, which is when it was written, but it said if you made an electric car now and tried to sell it to your traditional customers, you wouldn't be able to because it couldn't even do 50 miles. And because of that, you just, you just couldn't do it. But there probably were other uses for electric cars or areas where electric cars were preferable. So an example he suggested would be if you're a parent and you've got, a teenager and you want to get them their first car just because at that mm. point the acceleration was so slow that you potentially want them in a vehicle that they couldn't get up to speed in whereas most <laughs> drivers didn't want that and then what happens is as the electric car develops so one thing it talks about is these smaller companies that have the disruptive technology they'll go into a they'll create their own new uses for this this new product basically and then what happens is once they then start moving it's usually cheaper and it's usually an inferior product, but they then start improving the product and then then start to move up market. And then that's when they start to attack the areas where the, the more traditional products have been. So in a, another example is it looks at the steel industry and the motorbikes as well. It looks at, is it, I think it's high under, is it Mitsubishi? Well, anyway, there's a Japanese bike maker where it came in with the much lower priced bikes and no one wanted them. It couldn't displace Harley Davidson. What happened was they just took the, the executives that had come over. They just went out for a drive at the weekend, just like on dirt tracks. And they found it was really useful for that, this smaller bike. So then they started selling them for that and the bikes improved. And then they started to move into the main market where like Harley Davidson was more dominant. And what happened was Harley Davidson got them pushed up to the very top end of the market. So yeah, so it's just that sort of thing. Well, that sounds, I, I, it's one that I'm going to, I think I'll read after oh, really? for you. Yeah, oh, genuinely. So it's yeah, so it's it was I think it's useful. I think you know it's not it's not bits of it aren't the most exciting book in the world just because it's quite academic parts of it, but the case study is very interesting and just for thinking about companies where they could be displaced and why and understanding why, even if it looks like the company's got good management, it's it can still fail. I I I, I would recommend it. Seven and a yeah. half out of ten, I'd give it. So okay. Fantastic. Well, I think that's all for this week. So thank you again for listening and join us again next week. See you next week.
Thank you for listening to The Investor Way. To get in touch, please follow us on Twitter at TIWTweets. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial advice. Neither Sam nor Jonathan are financial advisors. For investment advice, please consult professional advisors.